Hi, Noiser listeners. We hope you enjoyed this preview of Noiser's newest podcast, Detectives Don't Sleep. The show that takes you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. If you enjoy it and want to hear more, subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. It's summer, 1913, in Chicago. The sky is bright and cloudless. The sun's heat, relentless. Two detectives stand outside a crumbling apartment block on Clark Street. It's a seedy area in North Chicago. The building is a relic of the old city before it was ravaged by the Great Fire of 1871. Since then, Chicago has become America's first real modern city, home to the country's first skyscraper. But none of that ingenuity can be seen here. Some of the apartment windows have been covered up with huge wooden boards, and the tiny gardens are all littered with trash. The detectives climb the steps of the filthy tenement building. One of the detectives, Williams, looks like you would expect. Black porcelino hat, permanent scowl, and, despite the high temperatures, a three-piece suit. The other detective, Alice Clement, does not. For a start, she's a woman a rarity on any police force in 1913. Her career began in 1909 as a beat cop for the Chicago Police Department, where she patrolled department stores in search of pickpockets. After impressing her superiors with her extensive arrest record, she was promoted to detective, the first female to be assigned to the role in that city. Never known to bend to convention, Detective Clement is famed for her flamboyant fashion sense, always dresses as if she's headed to a high-class ball. As she clacks up the stairway in her trademark high heels, the string of pearls she's wearing tinkle in time with each step. She pulls the hem of her fashionable gown away from the dirty ground, exposing lace stockings a vibrant feathered hat adorns her short brown bob. At the top of the stairs, the two detectives meet the building's janitor. His gray shirt is stained dark under the armpits. Sweat runs down his forehead in rivulets as he sweeps, trying his best to rid the tenement block of some of the grime. It's a hopeless task and a thankless one too. When he realizes who his guests are, he puts down his broom and leads them to the apartment of Miss Eileen Perry. That morning, Detective Clement and Williams received a report of a death in the slums. Nothing to it in the way of a case, said the station orderly. But the whole place is so destitute, I thought maybe you might want to look things over. It seems... Eileen Perry died of typhoid, an extremely common way to die in this part of town. But then again, so is murder. 
the detectives might as well cover their bases. The janitor opens the door and lets him into a small room in a squalid state. The smell of stale sweat and death hangs in the air. Within the twitching piles of trash that litter the room, high-pitched rodent squeaks can be heard. Detective Clement's attention is drawn to the body on the filthy bed. She sees a painfully thin young woman. Her skin, an unnatural shade of white. Eyes staring sightlessly at the peeling paint on the ceiling. Detective William shakes his head. It's always sad to see a young person go before their time. But he's convinced that no crime has been committed. There's no signs of assault, and honestly, judging by the squalid state of her apartment, it's no wonder she got sick. Investigating further would be a waste of everyone's time. Detective Clement isn't so sure and hasn't earned the name the female Sherlock Holmes for nothing. While the two men stand by the door and chat, Detective Clement puts her famous eagle eye to work and scours the room. She rummages in the drawers, but there's nothing to be found aside from a couple of sheets of paper, some hair clips, and loose change. A number of floral dresses are draped over a spindly chair next to the bed, though their pockets are empty aside from some pieces of lint. Detective Clement is almost coming around to her partner's way of thinking, but something catches her eye. In the corner of the room, leaning against a wall coated in sticky cobwebs, is an object that makes her pause. It's a dulcimer, a stringed instrument similar in appearance to a lute or a guitar, though thinner. A number of dents cover its body, and the light wooden fretboard is stained and discolored from years of use. It's obviously very old, though the metal strings look new. They're coiled silver, shimmering in what light is allowed through the small, grimy windows. It's an expensive instrument to purchase and looks wildly out of place in Eileen's room. Detective Clement brushes her gloved fingers against the shining strings and playfully plucks one. Strangely, they feel rough to the touch, almost as if they're rusted, but there's no rust visible. From her pocket, Detective Clement pulls out her trusty magnifying glass and moves in for a closer look. What she sees takes her breath away. The strings are covered in little white granules. Detective Clement doesn't know what exactly they are, but she's pretty sure of one thing. The strings have been weaponized. It's possible these granules could be some kind of poison. But who would go to all this trouble to poison this poor girl? Answering that will take everything Detective Clement's got. She'll use her incredible powers of deduction and go undercover as she hunts down a killer hiding in plain sight. It's a case that'll take the nation by storm, solidifying Alice Clement's reputation 
as one of America's greatest sleuths. And it all starts right here, in this grimy apartment in the heart of Chicago's slums. My name is Mark Dotson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're tailing Chicago's first female police detective, Alice Clement, as she cracks one of the toughest cases of her career. What starts off as an ordinary call out to the slums quickly becomes a story of murder and intrigue that is truly stranger than fiction. From Noiser, this is the story of the Dulcimer murder, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Not wasting any time, Detective Clement hands the Dulcimer to Williams and orders him to take it to the microscopist. Detective Williams looks at her, stunned. In his mind, the death of Eileen Perry is clearly not a police matter. She got typhoid from living in the slums and died. The same old sad but common story. But he trusts Clement's instincts. Now what have you got up your sleeve, he asks, a smirk playing across his lips. A murder case. And a good one, Detective Clement replies, before hurrying him off to headquarters. She hangs back, keen to have a word with the janitor. He might just know more than he's letting on. Alone with Detective Clement, the janitor suddenly seems nervous. Despite being a new addition to the force, the detective has already made headlines in the city due to her impressive arrest record and zany wardrobe. Not to mention the fact that she's skilled in jujitsu and more than capable of taking down a grown man in spite of her petite 5'3 frame. Yeah, you heard right, jujitsu. There's pictures to prove it. Everyone in Chicago knows that Alice Clement isn't one to be messed with. The janitor glances at her, but cannot hold eye contact for more than a few seconds. Instead, his gaze flits around the room and he ruffles his thin mustache with the tip of his finger. Detective Clement doesn't have to ask many questions. Instead, the janitor, who is clearly feeling uncomfortable, fills the silence with any details he can think of. Eileen Perry, the deceased, arrived from the country and quickly set about looking for work, but to no avail. She took the cheap lodgings they're currently standing in and paid her rent from what money she had when she arrived. She didn't come with many belongings, and the janitor is convinced that the dulcimer was not amongst her original possessions. He only remembers hearing music coming from her apartment approximately a few weeks after she moved in. Detective Clement inquires about any visitors Eileen may have received. The janitor tells her that there were three regular visitors in her final weeks. A doctor had visited every day since Eileen took ill. A settlement worker named Mr. Grimes came regularly, though the janitor didn't like him. He was short-tempered and often complained about how America's poor 
were taking up too much of the country's already stretched resources. Very strange behavior for a man of his profession. All right, now, let's pause just for a second here. You've probably never heard of a settlement worker before. Essentially, settlement workers were an early form of social workers. People like Mr. Grimes would settle or live in the slums for extended periods of time based on their observations. They generate reports so that conditions could be improved. Now, when someone like Eileen fell ill with an infectious disease, they would come and inspect the building especially for typhoid, as it was typically spread through contaminated water. If one person was infected with typhoid, it could mean that a massive outbreak was on its way. Okay, back to the story. The third person to visit Eileen during her illness was a female charity worker. The janitor hadn't managed to catch her name but thought she was kind and seemed reputable. She took time to speak to him when they met on the stairs or balcony, something not many people who visited the building did. He described her as a tall, pretty, middle-aged woman with blonde hair. The janitor apologizes that he can't be more helpful, and Detective Clement thanks him for his time. As she exits the squalid building, the black coroner's wagon trundles up, an eerie, but not uncommon sight in these parts. With no time to waste, Detective Clement heads back to the police station as quickly as her high heels will let her. She's impatient to find out if the microscopist has been able to identify the mysterious white granules on the dulcimer strings, the vital first clue in her hunt for the killer. Historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, the Curious History of Your Home. The police station on Harrison Street, it's an eyesore. It's a squat, two-story building with a crumbling brick facade and large, round windows caked in filth. The sidewalk that runs outside the building, it's filled with hazardous cracks, Politicians have spoken regularly about leveling the whole block and starting again. Yeah, but they've been saying that same thing for a whole decade. Detective Clement notices none of these failings as she sweeps up the uneven steps and through the front door. Inside is a blur of movement. 
Receptionists dressed in starched gray dresses and conservative low-heeled shoes deliver bulging manila envelopes to detectives who are barely visible behind a mountain of paperwork. Nearly everyone has a cigarette clamped between their lips. A cloud of smoke turns the room almost opaque and makes it difficult to cross without bumping into something, like walking in a thick fog. Detective Clement crosses the room and ascends the stairs to her office. She finds Detective Williams waiting for her, holding the results from the microscopist. Well, she asks. Typhoid germs, Williams replies, strung along the strings of the instrument. The microscopist had deduced that the concentrated typhoid could only have been placed on the dulcimer intentionally. The bacteria would be easy to administer. All the murderer would have to do is rub it on the strings and then wait for Eileen to play. Detective Clement's theory was right all along. But Detective Williams, he remains unconvinced. Why would anyone want to kill the girl? After all, she had no money, nor did she seem like the sort of girl to engage in criminal activity. She also hadn't been in the city long enough to make enemies. Now, coating a dulcimer's strings in lethal bacteria would take careful planning. Even the act was dangerous in itself and posed a high risk to whoever carried it out. Surely, Eileen had not marked herself for death in such a heinous, calculated manner. Detective Williams reasons that the deadly bacteria was already on the strings when Eileen bought it. She was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time and was unfortunate to be the one to choose the poisoned instrument. He's ready to file the whole thing away as a tragic accident. Detective Clement can see his logic. By all counts, Eileen Perry was a very ordinary girl, but she can't shake the feeling in her gut that the poor girl's death was premeditated. And trusting that gut feeling has served her very well in the past. She sets about convincing Detective Williams to work the case. She asks him to track down the origins of the dulcimer while she tries to find out more about their victim. With a deep sigh, Detective Williams agrees. It's the next morning. Detective Williams flicks his dying cigarette into the gutter and wipes sleep from his eyes. He's standing on Wabash Avenue, outside yet another pawn shop. The sign jutting out from the top of the pawn shop swings in the wind, creaking as it does so. The window is filled with wooden guitars and sparkling jewelry, with handwritten signs promising the best prices in the city. Detective Williams pushes open the door, and a bell above his head tinkles. It's a fifth shop he's been to today, and they've all looked the same. Inside, more instruments line the walls, dangling from hooks, spaced evenly along the brickwork. The man who greets him is burly, with thick chest hair curling out of the top of a starched white shirt. He looks at Detective Williams with suspicion. 
the besuited detective is probably not the usual clientele that the owner of the store is used to. Detective Williams flashes his warrant card and inquires about the dulcimer. The man disappears in the back and returns with a heavy, padded book. He rolls a finger down the page, brow furrowed in concentration, and then flips over. On the third page, he stops and turns the book so that Detective Williams can see. A dulcimer matching the description of the one found in Eileen's apartment was sold to the pawn shop by a traveling musician several months ago. The owner of the shop claims that he had restrung the instrument himself before he sold it and that it was in perfect working order. Near the back of the ledger, Detective Williams finds the bill of sale for the dulcimer. It is signed by Eileen and dated several weeks before her death. Detective Williams leaves. Okay. Is it possible that the pawn shop owner weaponized the strings before selling the dulcimer? But why on earth would he do such a thing? And if that were the case, then why hadn't Eileen fallen sick sooner? Typhoid's a swift killer, and Eileen only became ill two weeks ago. It seems more likely that someone contaminated the strings after she acquired the instrument. That means whoever killed Eileen soiled them with the deadly bacteria when alone in Eileen's apartment, which narrows the suspect pool to the three people supplied by the janitor. The doctor, the settlement worker, Mr. Grimes, and the unknown lady visitor. Detective Williams isn't sure what to believe. He hurries to his next appointment at the morgue to find out if the post-mortem of Eileen Perry has revealed any clues. The hospital's busy. Nurses push metal gurneys this way and that, while doctors hurry to their next appointment, their white coats swishing behind them as they make their way through the sickly crowd. Visitors holding bunches of flowers paused by a map of the building, trying to work out which way to go. Detective Williams heads to the morgue. Stepping through the threshold, the temperature drops. The stench of embalming fluid hangs in the air, and rows of sheet-covered bodies line the walls. It's an eerie sight for even the most seasoned detective to take in. Thankfully, the pathologist leads him to a side office, away from the many reminders of death. There, the pathologist tells Williams that there was, indeed, typhoid bacteria present in Eileen's bloodstream. Not surprising, given the weaponized strings. More surprising is what the pathologist reveals next. He tells Detective Williams that an unexpected visitor came to view the body. It was Mr. Grimes, the settlement worker. The pathologist remembers the visit well, as he'd been on site at the time. Mr. Grimes had seen both excited and nervous. He asked if foul play was suspected and inquired about the police's investigation. 
<laughs> Sounds a bit suspicious, right? Why would a settlement worker be asking about a police investigation? Was it simply professional curiosity or something more sinister? Two days later, Detectives Williams and Clement meet at the police station. Since last they saw each other, Detective Clement had gone back to Eileen's apartment to do a more thorough search of her belongings. She was hoping to find something that would reveal where the poor girl came from, if she had any relatives, and, of course, any evidence that might lead her to a suspect. But all she found was a few postcards and old newspapers. It seems that Eileen truly was alone in the world. Detective Clement began to feel dejected about the case. Maybe her theory was wrong after all, and Eileen's death was just a tragic accident. But she perks up when Detective Williams reports back from his visit to the coroner's office. Williams tells her about Mr. Grimes' suspicious interest in the dead woman and his apparent anxiety about the progress of the police investigation. Of course, he could have just been following up on the case out of concern for Eileen. But this doesn't track with what the janitor said about him. If you'll recall, he mentioned Mr. Grimes' less-than-compassionate opinions about America's poor, which he expressed often and loudly. So why take such an interest in the death of the unfortunate Miss Perry. Could it be that he was secretly in love with her? Maybe she rebuffed his advances and he couldn't take the humiliation, decided to murder her and make it look like just another tragic death in the slums. I mean, after all, Grimes would know firsthand how quickly police usually dismiss cases like Eileen's. He'd also certainly know how common typhoid is amongst Chicago's poor. Alternatively, he might have expected some kind of payout from Eileen's death. Settlement workers sometimes receive bequests from their charges if they have no living relatives. According to Detective Clement's research, Eileen had no family. But did she leave any money behind? She calls Mr. Grimes' employers to request a breakdown of the bequests he's received in the past. In the meantime, she resolves to investigate suspect number two, the doctor. Now, at first glance, doctors always appear to be the least likely murderers. After all, they've dedicated their lives to saving people. Harming someone would go against their very nature, don't you think? But if Eileen's doctor is behind the murder, it wouldn't be the first time in recent years that a physician was unmasked as a sadistic killer. Just three years ago, in 1910, Dr. Holly Crippen was hanged for poisoning his wife and burying her in the cellar. It was all over the papers. And back in 1892, Dr. Thomas Cream was found to be a serial poisoner. You see, doctors can operate above suspicion. Not only are they well-respected by the community, but their knowledge of medicine makes it easy to cover up their crimes. Plus, who would have greater access to concentrated typhoid bacteria than a doctor? 
Detective Clement tracks down Eileen Perry's doctor and visits him at the hospital. The doctor's manner is friendly and accommodating. He certainly doesn't seem like a man with murder on his conscience. Clement asks about Eileen Perry's symptoms in the lead up to her death. The doctor's demeanor grows solemn and professional. He tells her about the coughing and the fever, and that he had treated dozens of people across the city with similar symptoms. Apparently, he pleaded with Eileen to come to the hospital for treatment, but she refused. She was just one of those country girls who was born with a terrible fear of hospitals, he explains. Detective Clement then asks to see his treatment records for Eileen Perry. He readily obliges and hands her the folder. Clement looks through the dates of each of his visits. It quickly becomes apparent that the doctor had only come into contact with Eileen after she had fallen ill. He wasn't her physician before, nor did he have any interaction with her while she was well. Now this means that he couldn't possibly have poisoned the dulcimer strings. The doctor death theory has come to a dead end. But two suspects remain, and Detective Clement won't rest until that number is whittled down to one. Next, Detective Clement sets her sights on the mysterious female charity worker who had visited Eileen in the weeks leading up to her death. She heads to City Hall and requests the records of all the charity workers that frequented the area around Clark Street. Luckily, she finds only one that matches the description given to her by the janitor, a wealthy single woman by the name of Mrs. Brent. Detective Clement decides to go undercover to question her. You see, people tend to be more forthcoming when they don't know they're talking to the female Sherlock Holmes. So she ditches her fancy clothes, and in place of her gown, she wears a conservative knee-length dress with white stockings. She quaffs her fashionable bob into a style that would have been in vogue several years ago and a pair of wire-rimmed spectacles now perch on the end of her nose. She looks at herself in the mirror and is both appalled and pleased by what she sees. She's completely unrecognizable. Detective Clement then heads to an attractive apartment block in the north of the city. The exterior of the building is pristine flanked by an array of leafy trees. Each of the windowsills is home to a plant pot from which a selection of brightly colored flowers spring. She enters the building and finds the door she needs. It's opened by a handsome, middle-aged woman with long eyelashes and a tight bun in her hair. Detective Clement introduces herself as a door-to-door -door bookseller and gives a fake name. The woman considers the bulky suitcase Detective Clement is wheeling behind her, introduces herself as Mrs. Brent, and invites her in. They sit down in a well-appointed living room where Detective Clements fills a coffee table with books. They discuss them for a while until Clement suddenly changes the subject. 
she looks around the apartment and makes a throwaway remark about money. Something along the lines of how it must be nice to have the money to buy whatever you want, when you want. She watches Mrs. Brent's reaction closely and notes a wicked gleam in the woman's eye, a hunger almost. Now, this may seem like an odd thing to say, but there's method to Detective Clement's apparent madness. She knows that money is one of the primary motives in murder. Okay, it's hard to see poor Eileen Perry as the kind of victim who's murdered for her assets. But in 1913, it wasn't unheard of for murderers to take out insurance policies on their victims and then pocket the proceeds. In fact, it was the M.O. of America's first serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, who coincidentally operated out of Chicago. Clement then changes the subject again. This time, it's death she wants to talk about. Mrs. Brent has already told her about her charity work. Well, it must be hard, muses the sympathetic bookseller, going into the slums like that. All those tragic deaths, the starvation, disease, murder. The gleam quickly disappears from Mrs. Brent's eyes. Her complexion turns pale and her nerves seem rattled. Could it be guilt over the murder of Eileen Perry? Detective Clement is determined to find out. She leaves Mrs. Brent's house, promising to follow up on their meeting should she wish to purchase any books. There's certainly something suspicious about Mrs. Brent. But she still has Mr. Grimes to consider. When Detective Clement arrives back at the police station, she receives a call from Mr. Grimes' employer. Apparently, he'd received no payout after Eileen's death. Furthermore, his colleague assures her that despite his surly exterior, Mr. Grimes cares deeply for all his charges. He always follows up when there's an untimely death. This tallies up with how he acted when he spoke to the pathologist. His inquiries about Eileen's death weren't prompted by guilt, but concern. Detective Clement rules Mr. Grimes out, leaving only one suspect remaining, Mrs. Brent. Of course, Detective Clement doesn't yet have enough to formally charge the woman, just the process of elimination and a hunch. But Mrs. Brent doesn't need to know that. She heads straight to Detective Williams' office. When she bursts through his door, Williams laughs at her undercover disguise. He's not used to seeing her out of her high-fashioned gowns and jewelry. She can't help but smile back at him. Come on, she says, offering no explanation as to where they're going. She doesn't need to. Williams trusts her. Together, they hail a cab and head back to Mrs. Brent's lush apartment on the north side. When they arrive, Detective Clement knocks on their suspect's door, while Detective Williams hangs back, leaning nonchalantly against the wall. A 
It takes a few moments, but eventually Mrs. Brent appears. She smiles at Detective Clement and casts a wary glance at Detective Williams before inviting them inside. In the living room, Mrs. Brent apologizes for wasting Detective Clement's time. She makes it clear that she doesn't wish to buy the books that Detective Clement had offered her earlier. Detective Clement steadies herself. It's about to take a gamble. If it works, it'll crack the case wide open. If it doesn't, the whole investigation could fall apart. She sheds the salesperson persona like a snake sheds its skin. She flashes her warrant card before saying, Our business here this morning does not concern books. We're here to ask you why you murdered Eileen Perry. Mrs. Brent's face drains of color, and she glances quickly around the room, as if for an escape route. But before she can move a muscle, her eyes roll and she stumbles forward, promptly losing consciousness. Detective Clement rushes to her and manages to catch her before she hits the ground. With Detective Williams' help, they drag the stricken woman to her bed, where they wait for her to recuperate. Once she's sure Mrs. Brent's awake enough to answer her questions, Detective Clement says, You have confessed by your actions that you are guilty. Now, before we take you to police headquarters, tell us why you committed this murder. Mrs. Brent nods solemnly. She begins by dropping a bombshell. She is, in fact, Eileen Perry's aunt. Eileen's family had once been wealthy, but they'd fallen on hard times. When Eileen's dad died, he left a small plot of land in Colorado to his daughter in his will. If she was only a child, she was unaware of it. The will was sent to her closest living relative, Mrs. Brent. Despite never having met the girl, she was charged with looking after the land until Eileen came of age. And she had every intention of doing just that. What would she want with some worthless plot of land in the middle of nowhere? But her attitude changed when a gold mine was found on the property. Well, suddenly, Mrs. Brent began making huge amounts of money from it. Money which she had no intention of sharing with her estranged niece, Eileen Perry. Eileen's 18th birthday came and went, with no word from Mrs. Brent. However, one day, a letter arrived from Eileen. She had found information concerning the property in Colorado amongst her father's possessions and wanted to sell it for whatever it was worth now that she had come of age. Mrs. Brent flew into a panic. She sent a return letter pretending to be a neighbor, claiming that Mrs. Brent had moved on without leaving a forwarding address. Mrs. Brent now needed a permanent solution and started planning how she could trick the girl into signing over the land. The letter she received from Eileen gave a return address in Pennsylvania. So, she went there to visit. But when she arrived, she was told that her niece had moved to Chicago to look for work. Mrs. Brent followed her to the Windy City and set about ingratiating herself into Eileen's life. 
using a different name. Knowing that Eileen had settled in the slums, Mrs. Brent decided that the least suspicious way to do this was to become a charity worker. She began regularly visiting the girl in her squalid room on Clark Street. Over the course of these meetings, they got to know each other well. Mrs. Brent even started to feel a bit guilty about her plan, but was unwilling to go back to working for a living. If she was used to a life of luxury, she didn't want to give it up. Perhaps to ease her conscience, Mrs. Brent often bought Eileen gifts, if you can call them that. After all, she bought them with money that rightfully belonged to Eileen. One day, while out on a walk, the pair passed a pawn shop. Eileen squealed with delight when she spotted a dulcimer in the window. She told Mrs. Brent how her father used to play the instrument and how she would love to learn. Mrs. Brent offered to pay for the dulcimer when the purchase was made. Eileen skipped home grateful to have such a generous friend. But that very day, Mrs. Brent made her way to City Hall, keen to seek advice on how she could steal the land from her unsuspecting niece. To her dismay, the clerk informed her that signing over land was a complex process. It would be virtually impossible for her to trick Eileen into giving up the property in Colorado. Disheartened, Mrs. Brent went home. She lay in bed that evening, unable to sleep. Terrible thoughts flitted through her mind. As dawn broke, greed had eclipsed her conscience. If she was to keep the land and all the money that came with it, there was only one option. Eileen Perry had to die. Ironically, it was during one of Mrs. Brent's charitable excursions that her murder plot was hatched. While visiting patients at a hospital, she spied a bottle of concentrated typhoid bacteria in one of the research facilities. There was the perfect murder weapon. In a flash, Mrs. Brent pocketed the vial and headed directly to Eileen's apartment. On her way, she racked her brain about how to administer the virus. Then, an idea left fully formed into her head. The dulcimer. She recalled Eileen trying out the instrument in the shop. As she had turned the sheet music, she put her fingers to her lips in order to wet them, allowing her to turn the pages more easily. When she arrived at Eileen's run-down home, she asked about the girl's progress with the instrument. Said she was keen to hear her play, but first asked Eileen to fetch her a glass of water. Alone, Mrs. Brent had unstoppered the vial of bacteria and tipped some of the fine powder onto a handkerchief. Quickly, she wiped it up and down the strings careful not to let them ring out. When Eileen returned, she picked up the instrument and began to play. Mrs. Brent focused on her fingers, waiting for her to wet them and turn the sheet music over. When she finally did, Mrs. Brent sank back into her chair. 
the young girl had certainly improved. In fact, some of the sweetest music she'd ever heard. It sounded like... like victory. Mrs. Brent left Eileen's lodgings, safe in the knowledge that soon the Colorado gold mine would be all hers. Typhoid is a swift, ruthless killer. It should only take about two weeks. She fully believed her niece's case would be written off as just another tragic death in the ghetto. What cop would waste their time on a ragamuffin like Eileen Perry? Unfortunately for her, the case fell across the desk of one of the only people on the force who did care about the women of the slums. Detective Alice Clement. Mrs. Brent finishes her story. Her throat sounds ragged, and tears spring to her eyes. Detective Clement thanks her for her honesty. Tentatively, Mrs. Brent pushes herself up from the bed and reaches for a glass of water. With a quiet rattle, Detective Williams slips a pair of handcuffs from his leather belt and waits for her to finish drinking. Mrs. Brent takes a large gulp and sets the glass down again. On shaky legs, she stands up. Detective Clement can hardly believe what happens next. She watches, first in confusion, then in horror, as Mrs. Brent reaches into the pocket of her dress and pulls out a penknife. The sharp tip of the silver blade glints in the light, and time slips into slow motion before Detective Williams or Detective Clement can react. Mrs. Brent plunges the tip into her own neck. Mrs. Brent lets out a terrified scream and starts to gag. As she moves to make a second thrust, Detective Clement springs to her feet and knocks the blade from her hand. She pulls Mrs. Brent to the floor, where she tries to stem the blood flow by holding a pillow to the laceration, but it's no use. The damage has been done. Ten minutes later, Mrs. Brent lies dead on the floor. Mrs. Brent's final frenzied act prevents justice from truly being served in the murder of Eileen Perry. Nevertheless, the Dulcimer murder case makes headlines across the nation and Detective Clement is hailed as a hero. In fact, she becomes something of a household name. Newspapers simply can't get enough of the fashionable crime-busting dame from Chicago. Throughout her varied career, Detective Clement takes particular interest in the plight of poor women and sex workers. In 1919, she even writes, produces, and stars as herself in a feminist film called Dregs of the City. The movie advocates the growing suffragette movement and the right for women to end abusive marriages. It receives rave reviews in every city it premieres in. Sadly, Dregs of the City has been lost to time and only a few promotional stills remain. 
Alice Clement remains a Chicago PD detective until 1926, when she gets demoted due to health concerns. It turns out she suffers from diabetes, a fact that she carefully hid from her superiors during her time on the force. In the space of a few months, a wheelchair becomes necessary, and sadly, Alice Clement passes away on December 26, 1926, at the age of 49. Nearly 100 years later, Detective Clement is all but forgotten. There are no official records of her incredible career, and her badge and gun have been lost. Her grave in Hensdale Cemetery doesn't even bear a police star. Instead, all we have to remember Detective Alice Clement are newspaper clippings and a few rapidly fading photographs. It doesn't seem much to mark the life and career of an extraordinary woman and a great detective. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we delve into a mystery that starts in wartime Berlin and continues right up to the 21st century. In 2014, art detective Arthur Brand takes a call that launches him on a quest to find a controversial lost artwork, a pair of monumental bronze horses by one of Hitler's favorite sculptors. The work had long been thought destroyed, but now someone's offering it for sale on the black market. The question is, who? Arthur fears the sellers are violent neo-Nazis, who will use the proceeds to fund their terrorist activities. To thwart their plans, he enters a shadowy world of dodgy art dealers and Nazi sympathizers as he begins the hunt for Hitler's horses. And don't miss our special episode in which we talk to Arthur Brand himself. Hear the truth about the hunt for Hitler's horses straight from the horse's mouth. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts.